go ahead and grab your Bibles this morning and turn with me once again to the book of Exodus. Uh, The book of Exodus once again this morning. We're in Exodus chapter 19 this week as we continue to follow this family of Israel in their exodus out of Egypt and into the land God has promised them. So Exodus uh, chapter 19. Well, it's no secret that we as human beings have a difficulty with rules and the law. Just watching the news on any given evening presents us with a cultural commentary that not only proves this very fact, but it also sadly emphasizes a certain hostility that now exists between the law and those who are to comply with it. For example, a couple of weeks ago, I came across a short video clip of a former Chicago Bears running back, Matt Forte. As he goes on this ride-along with the Chicago police commander on Chicago's south side. In the video, Forte not only joins the commander uh, through a tour of the city's Auburn-Gresham neighborhood, but he also interacts with the residents during the ride-along. And he does so in an effort to show, especially to young residents, that they can find common ground with police and with the law. The narrative, states Forte, even to young kids, is that all police officers are bad. And that's not the case. And so we've got to find some kind of common ground. Well, as the video concludes, much to Forte's surprise, near the end, you can hear adult residents screaming at Forte, ordering their kids not to talk with the police. And even as Forte tries to convince and explain that he's just a former Chicago Bear running back on this ride-along, one child even curses at Forte in response. A case in point, we as human beings have a rough time with being told what to do. This deep suspicion and even in some cases resentment for the law, however, is not new to humanity. The truth is, we don't have to look at the news on a nightly basis to see this. We see it in the mirror every single morning. In fact, we've been bristling against rules and restrictions ever since the fall, as recorded back in Genesis chapter 3. You see, it's the fallen innate response of our sinful hearts to take offense to commands and the law, especially God's law. And so, as we step into the remaining chapters of the book of Exodus, we see that we're coming face to face with God's law. Here in Exodus 19 the people of Israel find themselves encamped at the foot of Mount Sinai. And here we find the stage is being set for the giving of the law. The law that we find in chapters 20, really all the way through chapter 31. What we have here in chapter 19, though, is especially significant to our understanding of the law. For without these words here that we have in front of us this morning, we could totally abuse... We can misuse and even dismiss what we're about to study in the next couple weeks. As a matter of fact, unfortunately, the commands we find throughout the remaining chapters have suffered considerable mistreatment from those who claim to know and understand the God who gives them. And they do so primarily because they take these commands out of the context in which they were given. And so, with those dangers in mind, I want to encourage us this morning to carefully consider the context that is set here in chapter 19, and the words we hear spoken by the great I Am. 
So hear God's word to his people this morning as I begin reading in verse 1 of chapter 19. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And so Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. And so Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people. And they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day, there were thunder and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. And then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on the mountain, Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. And let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. And so Moses went down to the people and told them. Here is God's unchanging word where he reveals himself to us. And so before we look at this passage this morning, let's go to him in prayer. Now, Father, this morning we are grateful for your word. We're grateful that in your word you reveal yourself to us. You speak to us. And so God, this morning as we hear, as we listen intently, May your spirit do that work of opening blind eyes, opening hearts that have been hardened to your word, and may we see you. I see you brightly and hear from you 
what you think of even us today. God, we ask all of this for your glory, your fame, and for our, for our enjoyment of you and you alone, in your name. Amen. Well, here in Exodus chapter 19, as we've just read, we see this grand picture of the people of Israel coming to the Mount Sinai, ready to receive from the Lord. And I want to focus our our study this morning on just a couple verses. We're not going to go through all the details of this entire chapter, but I want to focus our attention on specifically verses 4, 5, and 6, where here we really see the context of what's to come in the days and the commands ahead. As we saw last week, so far this family sto- in this family story, God has been exceedingly gracious to the people of Israel. Despite ongoing struggles they have to fully trust him, his ways, and his wisdom. Uh, he shows his deep and abiding love for his people and his, his extravagant mercy to them. He shows it through his providence, his promise keeping, his protection over his people time and time again. I mean, he's delivered them from oppression and affliction. He's provided for them despite their incessant grumbling. He's showcased his power over everything, over creatures, rivers, seas, false gods, opposition, even hardened hearts. I mean, just the simple fact that Israel is here, encamped outside of the mountain, in verses 1 and 2, is undeniable proof that God always keeps his promise to his people. For remember what he promised to Moses way back in chapter 3, in verse 12, as he spoke through the burning bush. He said, But I will be with you, and and this shall be the sign for you, that I have sent you, When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God, where? On this mountain. And these words are now a reality here in chapter 19. Because God is a God who keeps his word. He has been faithful to his people. And so, as we just read, before giving the people his commands to which they're to live by, he begins by reminding them of his grace and love for them. And look at verse 4 once again. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Forty-eight days have passed since Israel had been delivered from slavery out of Egypt. In one sense, it should have been fresh on their minds. Yet, in another sense, the barrenness of a wilderness has that tendency to make You shut out the things of the past as you hope for some sort of new deliverance to something that's better than the present that you find yourself in. But notice here that God is not just simply reminding them of what he's done in the past. He's reminding and helping them understand what the past was for. Look down at the end of verse 4. How I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. You see, all along God had a purpose in his plan his plan for deliverance was not just to give them freedom out of slavery but to set them free to enjoy him and his presence it wasn't just to take them out of egypt but to bring them to a place in his presence he was bringing them to himself into a fuller experience of the covenant that he had made with them and into the relationship that their salvation had been grounded in And Deuteronomy 7.7 explains it like this. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you 
because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your forefathers. In other words, the Lord had delivered the people of Israel. What we've seen throughout the first half or so of Exodus was simply because he loved them. For sake of illustration this morning, take, for instance, a contrast between a child and a squirrel running out into the middle of the road. The truth is, I don't really care all that much about a squirrel in the middle of the road. I might not even, in fact, swerve to miss it. I'm sorry, squirrel lovers. I might not even swerve to miss it. But if it's a child in the road especially my child, well, that's a different story. I would immediately stop or immediately run out into the road to save them from danger, do whatever I could to help them. Why? Why the difference between a child and a squirrel? Because of love. You see, if saving was a child was done just simply out of what's good for the child, then I should probably feel the same impulse for the squirrel. I mean, it would be good for the squirrel in the end if I saved its life and stopped or swerved. But there's a big difference, isn't there? When a relationship binds two people together, deliverance is not only passionately pursued simply for the good of that child, but that deliverance is motivated by love so that the relationship continues as, and is fully enjoyed. You see, that is what God is seeking to explain here. I saved you, yes, I saved you for your good, but most importantly, because of my love. I was drawing you to myself in love. And it's this foundation that he lays for what comes next in the few chapters ahead of us. The context in which the law is given is an already established covenant relationship of love. A covenant that had been established way back in Genesis chapter 12 with their forefather, Abraham. It's now being reiterated once again here to the people of Israel. Commentator J.A. Motyer explains, Motyer, The Lord's great act of deliverance and salvation has already been done. And we read of that in verse 4. And this is why verse 5 can speak of the Lord's covenant as an existing reality and something to be kept that is preserved and guarded it was in pursuance of his covenant promises that the lord came to his distressed people in egypt not to make them his sons but because israel was already his firstborn the redemption he achieved for them fulfilled the great covenant promise that i will take you as my own people and i will be your god it's not therefore that they are ordered in verse 5 to obey in order that they might enter into the covenant relationship, but that already being within the covenant, they are called to obey so that they might enjoy the benefits and privileges of God's people. You see, this is very crucial to our understanding of what's coming next. This means that keeping the law is not about a covenant status, but covenant enjoyment. It's not about a relationship status, but an enjoyment in the relationship. Israel is not seeking to become God's people. Rather, they are learning to enjoy him, a fuller relationship with him by walking in his ways. 
And so it's with this context set that God continues now in verses 5 and 6 to rehearse the covenant relationship that exists between his children, Israel, and himself. And as he does, we see this simple truth unfold in front of this, us this morning. This truth that God's redemptive love shapes our identity and informs our mission. God's redemptive love shapes who we are and informs what we do. See, having reminded them of his redemptive love in verse 4, before setting out to show them the best way that they should live so that his name continues to be known among all the nations, God here is emphasizing who the people of Israel are. And in doing so, he informs them what they are to do. And so I want to focus us in here on verses 5 and 6, where God speaks over his redeemed loved ones three phrases that shape their identity and inform their mission. They are his treasured possession, his kingdom of priests, and his holy nation. And as we hear God's declaration over his people in these verses this morning, I believe he would have us also eagerly welcome his ways and joyfully embrace his mission. So notice first with me that Israel is his treasured possession. Having established that the purpose for delivering his people out of the the bondage in Egypt was bringing bringing them to himself, God now gives us a, a glimpse deeper into the heart he has for his people. You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. I mean, what a beautiful title this is. My treasured possession. God is saying here that out of all tribes, all tongues, all nations, Israel is his special one, his personal. You hear the personal possession here, my treasured possession and they are so purely by his will and desire in fact if you remember throughout the story so far they've really done nothing at all to deserve this title why would god be calling these people treasured possession they haven't made themselves out to be unusually attractive to god they haven't wooed him in any way in fact they've done the absolute opposite They've grumbled, complained, distrusted his promises, doubted his ways, even been dissatisfied with all the good things he's given to them. They've longed to go back to the false gods of Egypt, but yet he calls them his treasured possession, his greatest valuable. This past week, my son Haddon, five-year-old, finds this small blue airsoft BB or pellet, whatever you want to call it. It's a small ball, and he now affectionately calls this thing Rolly, because it rolls. I mean, that makes sense, right? In a five-year-old's mind. So Rolly is now placed specifically into a Ziploc bag because he doesn't want to lose Rolly, or he doesn't want any of your children that are younger that come over to swallow Rolly. This is his treasured possession. At least this week it is. <laughs> Somehow, he even gets emotional to the point of tears when all of a sudden he can't find Rolly because he's sitting on it or it just rolled underneath the couch. The truth is, and don't tell Haddon I said this, Rolly is rather insignificant. I mean, there's millions, even trillions of small BBs out there in this world. 
So if, or should I say, when Haddon ends up losing Rolly down the air duct, I can always go out and grab another one and find another Rolly for him, I guess, if that's all that important. But you get the picture, right? We all have these certain treasured possessions. It's humorous when it's a child, but when it's our iPhone, whew, lay off that treasured possession, right? We have these treasured possessions, things that are so important to us. And what God is saying here is, even though there are thousands of other people, even though there are thousands of nations, I have chosen you. I have a deep and abiding love for you and you alone. As a matter of fact, this is wedding language here. It's what every single bride wants to hear on her wedding day and every day after, right? You are my treasured possession. In Obadiah, verse 17, we read this phrase, to possess one's possessions. It's used there to express the idea of entering into the full enjoyment of what is ours. And that's exactly what God is saying here. He has acted, delivering and securing his people and their obedience to him brings him full enjoyment. They are his possession. He possesses them for they are his. He delights to dwell in relationship with them. God delights to dwell with his people as his treasured possession as they we will soon see, walk in his ways. They obey his voice. They keep his commandments. You see, this declaration over the people of Israel is vital not only to their understanding of the law, but also to their acceptance and obedience to the law that is about to come. God wants them to understand their status with him prior to the law coming to them. But friends, isn't it true when you know that you are deeply loved and cherished, you want to do what that person delights in? When love is the foundation and the ongoing experience within a relationship, then instruction, directions, aren't all that cumbersome and oppressive to follow, are they? You know these things are for your good, for your joy, because you are that one's treasured possession. And so he says, you are my treasured possession. This is who the Israelites are in God's eyes. This is their identity. But next, notice also that they are his kingdom of priests. Having rooted their identity in his love for them, God now not only further explains their status with him, but also begins to explain the mission that they have going forward. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests. Now, at this point in the story, the priestly role hasn't been yet established within the nation of Israel. But the truth is, they're generally aware of priests and their roles. We've seen last week that Jethro was a priest, a Midian. It's likely that there were priests within the false worship in Egypt. And simply by living in the ancient world, it's safe to assume Israel knew what priests were and how they would function. And even at their most basic level of understanding there would have been this idea that priest represented the people before their God and their God before the people. Priest had this job to represent the people before their God and the, their God before the people. The presence and activity of a priest created the possibility then of a relationship with people and the deity they worshipped. You could say that a priest was a go-between 
a mediator and an intercessor. And so now, God is identifying the Israelites not only as his treasured possession, but his kingdom of priests. And he's saying that Israel is in the same way able to create the possibility of a relationship with Yahweh, the great I Am. And Tim Chester notes, as a priestly kingdom, Israel was to represent God to the world through mission and represent the world to God through prayer. The world could not see God, but the world could see Israel and should have seen his glory in them. In other words, as a kingdom of priests, Israel would make God and the ways of his kingdom known to the nations. And once again, we come back to a central theme that we've seen throughout this book of Exodus so far. The God who makes himself known. You see, God's mission to make make himself known is becoming the Israelites' mission as well. He has made himself known through his mighty acts of judgment and then salvation, but now he will continue to do it through his people as they live in the ways of his kingdom. Once again, this phrase echoes the covenant promises and commission to Abraham in Genesis 12. You see here, God is reminding his people that they are to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. And they will do so as a kingdom of priests who represent the king of all kings to the nations by living in his good and righteous ways. But this phrase is also connected to the last declaration that we have over God's people. Not only are they a treasured possession, a kingdom of priests, but also a holy nation. These logically and even spiritually connect to the final statement here. Kingdom of priests and holy nation connect identity and mission. For priests are those who are to be holy. The word here literally means set apart ones or those who are consecrated for service. Specifically here for Israel, they are set apart to represent God before the nations. Once again, that tiny phrase at the end of verse 5 is so crucial to fully understand what God is declaring over his people here. Out of all the peoples. For remember, all the earth is mine. God has set apart the people of Israel as his holy nation. He has dedicated them for this role, for this mission. Now, it's usually the time in a sermon when you start talking about holiness, that many in our culture begin to bristle once again at the truth from God's word. I hear the preacher goes again, talking about holiness and commands, always a killjoy, isn't he? But if that's what's in your mind this morning, as we're talking about holiness, I'd venture to say that you are probably a person that appreciates the fact that hospitals go through a very tedious an arduous process of holiness and consecration, aren't you? Right? We appreciate that. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, let's take, for instance, the instruments that a surgeon uses. We all want those instruments to be sterilized, used only for the specific purposes of that surgery that we're having. In other words, we want them to be holy. We want them to be consecrated set apart for a distinct purpose, for that knee surgery that you're going to have. 
not the knee surgery and then also cutting open the boxes in the storage room or cutting the pizza in the dining room. The point is, when God calls Israel a holy nation, he is saying they are set apart. They have a distinct purpose, and that's to make his name known. Now again, often this idea of holiness has been mistakenly applied as a, as a call to totally disconnect from the world, to separate ourselves from the influences that might, quote-unquote, taint us. But that, again, is not at all the point here. You see, when God calls Israel a holy nation, he's not at all calling them to be disengaged. Rather, he is declaring them to already be holy. You are a holy nation, and as such, they are to be distinct in the ways they live, so that the dazzling difference in God's kingdom shines into the dismal darkness of the kingdoms of this world. And Chester again writes, this is God's peculiar people. And so they will be separate. But Israel is not separate in the sense of living in isolation from other nations. No, as holy and priestly, Israel is the means by which God will, as his plan unfolds more and more, bring the nations to have knowledge of him. See, this is why they're distinct. This is who they are, and it informs what they are to do. They are his treasured possession, and so they will dwell with him in delight, obeying his voice and keeping his commands. They are his kingdom of priests, and so as they obey his voice and follow his commands as his treasured possession, they hold out that possibility to all nations of having a relationship with the great I am. They are his holy nation. So as they live in his good and righteous ways, they live distinct lives to showcase their God and his glory. You see, the people of Israel are how the nations will know the Lord. Again, the central theme of Exodus is being explained here that now... Israel will show the Lord to the nations. But, as this family story continues throughout the pages of the Old Testament, we begin to see that the people of Israel fail, don't we? They fail to obey God's voice and keep his covenant. The law that was for their good, for their enjoyment of God's covenant relationship, they turn from to other gods. They fail to live under and in the good of the declaration that God has made over them here in verses 5 and 6. Oh, in verse 8, as we read this morning, they respond with this unqualified, yes, we will obey and hear God's voice. But they will soon, as we'll see, fall short of this enthusiastic, perhaps well-intentioned ascent. Peter ends notes, Whereas God has created a people to be the means of reconciling the nations, by their disobedient conduct, they become rather a byword and an object of ridicule by the nations. In fact, we'll see this in chapter 32 and verse 25, in that golden calf incident, where it says, Moses saw that the people were running wild and that Aaron had let them get out of control. And so... What does it say about Israel? They became a laughingstock 
to their enemies. Rather than redeeming the nations, calling them to know God, Israel, by rejecting the God who saved her, becomes a laughingstock. And as a result, the nations are less attracted to the true God than before. Israel fails miserably. But God, as we've seen throughout the story so far, is not a God who breaks his promises. For through the offspring of this nation would come one who would not fail. One whom God would declare over at his baptism, this is my beloved son, my treasured possession, with whom I am well pleased. The one who would declare in Luke chapter 4 and verse 18, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and set at liberty those who are oppressed. Well, this was the one who the author of Hebrews writes was a great high priest who passed through the heavens, entered once for all into the holy places. Why and how could he do that? Well, by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption, purifying our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he, he is the mediator of a new covenant. He is one who would not fail. He is Jesus, the true and greater Israel, who succeeded where the people of Israel failed. Jesus is the fulfillment of the covenant promises, and in him are all nations blessed. You see, because God kept his covenant promises in Jesus, this is our story as well. For those of us who have turned in faith, repented of our sins, we've come to a knowledge of the Lord as the the one who is greater, as we saw last week, greater than all other gods. Peter writes this, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, again speaking of Jesus as a treasured possession, you, that's you who have come to Jesus, like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through who? Through Jesus Christ. And listen to our identity in Christ as Peter continues. You are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. A holy nation. A people for his own possession. And here is our mission as well. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him. Him who called you out of darkness. Oh, the dismal darkness of the kingdoms of this world and into the dazzling delights and marvelous light of the kingdom of God. You see, God's redemptive love shapes our identity and informs our mission as well. Because of Jesus, we are God's treasured possession. So we might dwell with him in delight. But friend, is that how you view God's posture towards you as his child? Do you see God 
saying and declaring over you, you are my treasured possession? Or do you see him as disappointed in you? Disinterested. I do something great. And finally, I'll, I'll notice. Or do you see him as delighted in you because of Jesus? We are his treasured possession. We are his kingdom of priests. And so we would hold out the possibility of a relationship with him to all nations. How do we view God's mission for us? Do we view it as simply optional? Oh, maybe if I get around to it, should I hold out the possibility of a relationship with God to all nations? Or are we gratefully going, declaring through our lives, as we live as his treasured possession, living in his good and righteous ways, following his good commands, showcasing to the world that he is a God that's greater than all gods? We are his kingdom of priests. And we are his holy nation. And so we live distinct lives showcasing our God's glory. How do you view God's rules for you? Again, this is the context and exodus of the rules that are to come. We also have in Peter how we are to then live as Peter continues on. But how do we view those rules? Again, do we have this context of our identity as a treasured possession, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation? Do we see God's rules and commands as suffocating us? Again, God's always the killjoy. I want to do great, mighty things. I want to have fun in this world. But God's always telling me to serve. What fun is that? Are they suffocating? Are we self-righteous as we see God's rules? Huh. I've kept them pretty well throughout my life. You see all of this list of great things I've done? Or do you see God's rules as speaking for who your God is and who you are now because of Jesus? How do we view God? His posture, his mission, and his rules. You see, we are his treasured possession, his kingdom of priests, his holy nation. We are how the nations will know the Lord. And so church, let us eagerly welcome his ways. Let us eagerly, with great delight, hear his good and righteous ways for us. Living under his authority, following his good commands, and joyfully embrace his mission that we would be the kingdom of priests, the holy, of na- holy nations, who make other nations know that our God is greater than all other gods. And Father, this morning, I pray that as we've seen here in Exodus 19, this declaration over the people then, and we now have run through Jesus Christ, the greater Israel, to then his declaration over us, that we are now treasured priest in a holy nation. God, that you would stir within us as a people this, this affection for you. You would stir within us a passion to go as your chosen ones to proclaim the excellencies of him who brought us from darkness into marvelous light.
Stir that up within us as your people. May we long to know your good and righteous ways and live in them so that we would declare through our lives that our God is greater. God, I pray if there's someone here this morning that does not know you, that they have not turned in faith, repenting of their sins, coming and bowing before you as the great God, that you would do that in their heart even this morning. God, that they might be here for who knows what reason they've come this morning. Maybe they come every single Sunday, but yet uh, they have been fighting against you. Would you, through this declaration of your love and your passion for your people, would you stir in their hearts? Would you break their hearts to know you and follow you? God, would you use us? Would you use us as your people to continue to show the city of Sun Prairie that you are a great God?